And now, your podcast hosts, Andre and Christian. Happy New Year and welcome to your podcast, Connecting for Future. The podcast that explores the ways in which technology and innovation are shaping the world of tomorrow. Our purpose is to connect for a better future. Andre and myself, Christian, are honored to have a very special guest today. Lieutenant General, retired, Ben Hodges, who served as a commander for the U.S. Army in Europe. We'll be discussing the future of the U.S. Army and how collaboration will be key to its modernization and sustainability in the face of challenges such as climate change and extreme weather. Welcome to the podcast, General. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience as commander for the U.S. Army Europe? Sure. I'm originally from Florida, um, went to the military academy and graduated in 1980 as a brand new lieutenant. And my very first assignment in the Army was in Graustadt, Germany, West Germany at the time. Very first one. That was my first assignment. I started off in Germany. Half of the U.S. Army was in Germany at that time during the height of the Cold War. And uh, I, I fell in love with Germany uh, during those three years there. And uh, it was a exciting place for a new officer to learn my profession. Uh, and then for the next 35 or so years, I was everywhere else. I served, obviously, two years in Iraq, uh, one year in Afghanistan, a, a year in Korea, Pentagon, um, working congressional liaison, which was a fascinating job. We had to explain Army requirements to the Congress, but also answer congressional questions about Army budget. So I learned a lot about uh, how our government works. And I also had to relearn all the civics uh, I had blown off from uh, high school, <laughs> how a bill becomes a law. Um, that was a good assignment. And then I was very lucky that in my last assignment in the Army was back to Germany, uh, 2014 to 2017, to be the commander of U.S. Army Europe. Um, and then I retired in January 2018. So during that time that I was in Wiesbaden, uh, this was right after Russia had invaded uh, Ukraine and had uh, occupied uh, and illegally annexed uh, Crimea. And uh, so the whole European security situation changed right as I returned to uh, to Europe. So uh, also uh, an important But um, a very interesting time to be. And that's something we also want to go into more details today. But before we do so, General, as my kids always ask me, I know you, you don't, nobody knows the future, but what would you say about like the conflict in the Ukraine? Do you see like this coming to an end soon? Because it's now already since one year. So it's important to keep in mind, yes, I do, by the way, And I believe that uh, Ukraine is absolutely going to win, that they're going to regain uh, control of all of their sovereign territory to include Crimea. Uh, if, and this is a big if, if the West sticks together, that we deliver everything that we said we're going to deliver uh, and that we keep sanctions in place. Um, this this is about so much more than Ukraine. Um, I mean, This war in Ukraine actually started in 2014, not 11 months ago. Uh, Russia invaded because we, the West, did nothing after they invaded Georgia in 2008. 
they saw that we did nothing after they supported the Assad regime uh, and its use of chemical weapons against their own people, which was a red line for a former American president. Right. And so they were pretty confident that we would not do anything once they went into Crimea. Uh, so, of course, it turned out that they were wrong. But because we had been so weak and not held them accountable for all of their violations of international law and treaties that they had signed, then um, uh, we are here where we are now with a terrible conflict in Europe, which was probably unthinkable uh, a few years ago. So if we do what we said we would do, then we actually could see uh, Ukraine liberating Crimea even by the end of this summer. But we, we have to decide that, that this that this is important, that this is about more than just Ukraine. This is about the so-called international rules-based order, respect for sovereignty, that's in the UN Charter, respect for international law, respect for human rights. Um, If if we really care about those things, from which we, the West, have benefited more than anybody, then we have to make sure that Russia is stopped. General, you retired, as you said, uh, but you're still pretty active. Uh, that's what I read. So you, you're also a counselor for the human rights first. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I, I retired five years ago, and um, but I was only uh, 59 years old uh, at the time. So I, I thought I still had uh, something to offer. And so uh, I first went to work for a think tank called SEPA, Center for European Policy Analysis, which has always been focused on the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I really liked doing that. My priorities were always relationship between U.S. and Europe, U.S. and NATO, and U.S. and Germany, because Germany is such an important ally for the United States. Um, I also became a... Uh, senior mentor for NATO for logistics, which takes a few weeks out of the year. And then I do consulting for a few companies. I don't sell anything. I help them understand Europe, the EU, NATO, what, what the requirements are. Uh, this summer, I transitioned from the think tank to Human Rights First, where I am a senior advisor, partly because I was so worried about what was happening in my own country, uh, the rise of extremism in the United States, You could feel infringement on voting rights. Um, I could see, even though I was living here in Frankfurt, I could see that my own country had become more polarized than I had seen at any other time. So I thought I needed to get involved there as well. And of course, countering extremism is not just in the U.S. It's uh, inspired by Russia, but that's but because we're vulnerable, it's successful. And uh, and then finally, Human Rights First also has a program about accountability. That means holding the Russians accountable for the thousands of war crimes that they're committing right in front of us every day. General, in terms of the future of the military, uh, sustainability is a big um, topic nowadays, also in companies. So what do you think are the key challenges to become more resilient and adaptable? Well, of course, um, when you talk about... Uh, armored vehicles, uh, ships, submarines, uh, aircraft, all the different systems that we use that are necessary for our defense. You know, these are not uh, uh, necessarily going to be gas efficient or carbon neutral. So, I mean, we have to be realistic about what we're doing. But there are so many practical reasons why the military is, in fact, moving towards a more sustainable approach. 
number one, there's cost. Um, if they could, if we can get off of reliance on large bulk fuel, for example, that that helps with costs. Uh, but also from a security standpoint, um, when I was in Afghanistan in Regional Command South Kandahar, you know, we depended on convoys every day coming through Pakistan bringing fuel. I mean, 5,000 or 10,000 liter trucks bringing fuel. And so um, that was a huge risk. And so uh, we worked hard to improve our ability to get to generate electricity for solar power. Uh, obviously, that's not a big problem in Afghanistan if you have the infrastructure. So there was a practical reason for us to try and move towards um, uh, other sources of energy. The... Um, Military, of course, for all our all our nations is affected by climate change as well. Um, the rising oceans, just just a few or two or three inches, all of a sudden, Norfolk, Virginia, our biggest Navy base, has a real problem. So we're going to have to spend a lot of money to protect our biggest Navy base against the inevitable rise of the uh, water level of the Atlantic Ocean. So we, we have an interest for practical reasons, for security reasons, for cost reasons uh, to do our part as well. Do you think leadership has acknowledged that? Yeah, it, it, I see it. Or I, when I was still in the Army, I saw it all the time. I, would, I can remember getting a lecture from a former assistant secretary of the Army about our failure to, to do our part. Uh, you know, we plastic bottles everywhere, those kind. I mean, these are small things unless you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, then it's not a small thing. So uh, the military has, has a responsibility to, uh, to, to do its part as well. Can you give us some examples of types of collaboration and other partnerships with where the Army is engaged in? Well, of course, um, in the uh, what we call mission command systems, communications, uh, computing, artificial intelligence, uh, decision-making, Uh, so we work with, uh, I keep saying we, I'm retired, uh, but the military, um, the Department of Defense, uh, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well, works closely with uh, industry partners to help make sure we have the best possible communications networks. Uh, they have to be interoperable because none of us operates alone. Uh, you've got U.S., German, British, Polish, Croatian, uh, Italian soldiers, Danish soldiers all working together. And so you've got to be able to share intelligence and information over networks that are still protected from uh, cyber attacks by the Russians or um, other state sponsored or ind individual uh, agents that are trying to hack into systems. So that's the key is getting the authorities right as well as the technology right, you know, the policy about intelligence sharing, for example. So th this is an area where there's a lot of work being done, but also um, looking for lightweight material. You know, the, the tanks that are in the news so much right now, the American Abrams tank, the German Leopard, the British Challenger. I mean, these are 65 to 75-ton vehicles. And uh, that you can imagine that uh, not every place in, in Europe, for example, has bridges that can sustain that kind of weight. 
especially if you're talking about multiple times. So finding uh, lightweight uh, materials to reduce the weight of armored vehicles. Uh, also, a lot more um, work is being done on robotics because we want to reduce the uh, number of soldiers who are exposed to uh, to danger. Um, and also, if you can have a vehicle that has a robotic turret, for example, you don't have to have a soldier up in the turret, then you can knock off 10 or 15 tons of steel required to protect that too. So robotics, uh, are, I think, are playing a, an important part. And then finally, I would say in a related um, vein, unmanned systems, aerial as well as maritime drones, um, maritime drones in particular. We're all accustomed to seeing aerial, unmanned aerial systems. That's almost normal. You can buy those at a store. But the maritime systems, uh, the U.S. Navy is putting a lot of money there because it's much cheaper, obviously, than a ship with a crew that has to be maintained. And if you have uh, maritime uh, unmanned systems that are good for anti-submarine or countermine or intelligence reconnaissance, there's a lot of work being done there. Yeah, a lot of that you talked about now, the technology is also used in, in private companies, right? Drones, for example, we see a big uptake in drones being used for inspecting stuff, not using people, but using technology, using um, artificial intelligence to understand what, what's on the picture. Is there an, an anomaly? Is there something wrong? So I think there's a big parallel between technology being used in the military and also in companies. So um, and I also think that challenges we all face are so big that they can't be met by just one company or one country alone, um, and that partnerships uh, will get stronger in the future. So when we talk about technology, um, wh what's your take on that? How, how important is it? And is there a limit to technology, for example, in artificial intelligence, people tend to discuss about uh, there must be some kind of limitation? I think there is uh, zero limitation to technology. I mean, there, there is no boundary on human imagination. And, uh, and when you have policies and environments, work environments that enable and encourage mm -hmm. experimentation and, and testing, in terms of the technology itself, I, I don't think there's a limit. But that means that our governments have to incentivize this. Uh, you have to, if you fail on a test or an experiment, that should not be terminal. I mean, think of all the, <laughs> the times, uh, airplanes that have crashed, uh, during testing or space exploration or, uh, under, I mean, all the different things we do. Um, you have to have a, an environment that encourages experimentation and risk taking that is still obviously responsible, respectful of human life, respectful of international law, et cetera. And, and I think this is an area where um, we, we could and should see a lot of improvement. Now, just as important as the technology, though, is the policy. Um, you know, you've uh, each nation has to figure out You know, how do you deal with artificial intelligence? How you know, and still protecting privacy, protecting human rights, uh, uh, the use of, of drones that are armed. Uh, those are extremely valuable, but nations have to decide: um, is this uh, aligned with their with their 
their values. So policy, getting the policy right, is also important to um, enabling the use of technology. Let's talk a little bit about IoT because I know a lot of industries, a lot of companies, especially the automotive sector, they are having everybody has an IoT SIM card enabled. How would this apply with the U.S. military? I have no idea what IoT is. That's the Internet of Things, right? So it's like connecting devices, connecting things. So I think that the military, uh, not universally and not every aspect, um, is, is wising up to the reality of how young people are so clever at using various technologies. And so instead of trying to make a 19 or 20-year-old young woman or man who's a soldier in the military, make them use something that's older, why aren't we uh, adapting technologies and where they are already skilled to, to exploit those technologies? The key will always be, um, can that, whatever that technology is and the, and the access to uh, the internet, is that still going to be protected? Because of course, you know, we're not, we're not selling Coca-Colas or, uh, or delivering hamburgers here. This is, we're talking about uh, very uh, classified information, Uh, locations, things that the enemy would want to know about us, capabilities. And so that's why you can't just use your iPhone um, to to conduct military operations. That technology is good, but you have to be able to protect the information in such a way that it protects your systems and protects people that are conducting the actual operations. So that that will always be the key. And and it also has to be durable. I mean, you're not sitting in an office, you're out uh, somewhere, uh, you know, on the battlefield or uh, conducting operations somewhere. Yeah, I think security is also one of the things that are parallel to, to, to um, private companies, because what we see is a big trend of cyber attacks, not also on the big players, but also on, on medium-sized companies. And I assume um, there's a lot going on also in the military. Can you talk about a little bit the trends in, in, in security issues and attacks that uh, face the military? So, um, of, of course, there's different aspects of this, but the Pentagon is hit over a million times a day with from different state-sponsored uh, organizations as well as knuckleheads sitting in their mother's basement, you know, trying to see if they can hack into the chairman's office. Um, so this is nonstop. I mean, it's just like the, the ways of the ocean. And so you have to be able to um, share information at the speed of light, literally, but it with, with multiple partners and other organizations, but it's still got to be protected. So this is a nonstop uh, effort constantly because hackers and, and our enemies are constantly trying to figure out how do they <clears throat> how do they uh, get in so that's that's a part of this uh, but it's also uh, discipline uh, we we have to we have to train soldiers and, and people to be responsible about I mean and these are things that everybody that's listening to this program is already familiar with you know about uh, use of your card, Use of your information, who has access, um, not uh, not falling for every little phishing thing that comes along. So there is still, even in the year 2023, with all of the technology, there still is a basic requirement for individual responsibility, for discipline, for training, for supervision. 
um, that's that can't be solved just by uh, uh, having a new bit of software. Yeah, I think the human part is still uh, one of the crucial things in uh, security policy. That's true. I, in fact, I would say it's the essential uh, component. How do you see the role of Europe with the current conflict and within NATO? Uh, Europe uh, is America's largest trading partner. So American prosperity depends on European prosperity. And European prosperity depends on stability and security. So it's in America's interest that Europe is stable, secure. That doesn't mean we don't have huge debates over policy, over tax or over trade, over you know whatever it is. But at the end of the day, our prosperity depends on European prosperity. Um, and, and so that's why NATO was so important. That's why President Biden has made it a priority to repair relationships with the European Union. So Europe is our essential partner going well into the future. Of course, China is, is important. It's a huge threat down the road. But Europe is the essential part for us. From my perspective, Europe doesn't um, sometimes use its strength because there's lots of national interests going on. What's your view on that? Would it be better to, to have a stronger Europe with one opinion? Well, that'll never happen. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. It's It would be unnatural that everybody in Europe would have the same opinion. You don't get everybody in Washington, D.C. doesn't have the same opinion. Um, but the uh, I think... The really wise people that helped form um, had the idea or a vision of a Europe, Europe that is unified in terms of values and desired outcomes. That's a good thing, um, and and I think that um, the values that European countries have, even if they don't always live up to them, is why people want to be in the European Union. That's I mean. Ukraine is the only place where people died with an EU flag in their hand They, because they saw how much better life could be if they were given the opportunity to live in a free, liberal, democratic society. Now, that's inconvenient for a lot of people. And it's and it's uh, it's hard. I mean, this is a democracy is not a ballet. I mean, it's a constant fight. You see in the United States, I mean, we've, we've had some real challenges, not just January the 6th. But going back to our own civil war, where hundreds of thousands of people were killed um, 170 years ago. So um, it, it is hard, but there's a reason that people will risk their life to get to it and want to uh, be a, a part of that. And this is where I think Germany has got to quit hiding behind its history and uh, and step forward and, and be the use the moral authority that it has accumulated over the last 70 years Uh, and, and lead Europe. When we talk about new technology, it's also about risk-taking. Do you perceive any differences between the German and European way of doing it and the U.S. way? So, yes, uh, I do. And, of course, uh, companies have to be responsible when it comes to environment, to uh, human rights, to uh, uh, considerations about their employees, Uh, but I, I listened to a uh, CEO of a very large European business uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, it was a Chatham House rule, so I would not want to be too specific. But um, he was talking about how the difference between his very large European company and his American competitor and that he would never, ever want to trade the social safety net, the requirements for taking care of labor, the people and the environment. He said he would never trade that for what 
the United States has. However, he said that his American competitor operated in an environment that incentivized risk-taking, that uh, they were not only uh, assumed that they would fail, occasionally make mistakes, but they were incentivized to do that, to really reach the full potential of the technology, um, whereas he felt uh, constrained uh, by so many rules and regulations and that almost the, the attitude was that if you make a mistake or fail, you, you get punished. Quick fire round. Football or soccer? Um, American football, especially American college football is my absolute favorite. I, I lived in Texas actually a couple of years, but decades back, and there always was, was this big battle around uh, UT or Aggie. So I, <laughs> I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very emotional. Yeah. <laughs> Obama or Trump? Um, well, President Trump was uh, a disaster for our country. Um, I mean, he, I've never in my life did I imagine an American president would question America's commitment to NATO, for example. Um, And he uh, trampled all over our Constitution. I, I'm not sure he ever actually read it. Um, and it, and it was the way he uh, turned people against each other and continues to do so is very frustrating. I'm, President Obama, I, I didn't vote for him. I didn't agree with all of his policies. But at least he was not a president that embarrassed us uh, or, or challenged the Constitution the way Trump did. Rock and roll or country music? <laughs> I like uh, Train, Journey, Neil Diamond, uh, Jimmy Buffett. I like that. Very good. <laughs> so, and, and our last question today, uh, General Hodges, you're a very inspiring leader. Um, do you have any, the one single advice for future leaders, what would that be from your perspective? Uh, you've got to understand geography. Uh, look at a map. And, and understand the implications uh, for economies, for populations, for transport. Um, I think people uh, have forgotten how to l appreciate the importance of geography. Great advice. Thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on so many topics, Geologists. Thanks for the privilege. Thank you for listening. Make sure you rate, share, or leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. Please see the show notes for links and even more information. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Connecting for Future Podcasts, every month. Hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple, or any other platform you want to listen to podcasts. Follow us on our journey. Have a great day and take care.